Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 516, Being Honest with Abba. This week, as we near the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to get three interpretations of that comment from Jesus about casting pearls before swine. We're also going to learn how our prayer life can be an indicator of our faith and our heart's true desires. We're going to give you a surprising update on what's going on in Uganda despite the current crisis. But for now, let's jump in with Matthew chapter 7. Hi, everyone. It's good to be together again for what is, to my amazement, now part 16 of this series we've been doing on the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, This week, we're going to be looking at the beginning half of chapter 7. Um, And this section is really about relationship with God and others. Uh, Jesus was a realist. Uh, He knew that his disciples weren't perfect, his church wasn't perfect. So in this passage, he brings both direction and correction. His goal is that we would be, uh, as this new community, uh, profoundly countercultural. So there's there's three main themes. Uh, our attitudes toward others, uh, trusting our Heavenly Father, and moving from self-love to other love. Um, you know, these are not just kind of passing attitudes, oh yeah, we need to do better. They are deeply ingrained into our human nature. They, they are our ego self. And um, so we've got to deal with these things, not only radically, but, but regularly. It is so easy, dare I say so natural, to give ourselves a free pass in these areas. You know, the Sermon on the Mount will only do as much in our lives as we allow it to do. And why I'm teaching through this is I believe that these words, if we will allow them to go deep, will make deep and profound, profound change in our lives. So let's begin with the first six verses of chapter 7. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get a saying that Jesus uses several times, by the way, through the Gospels. Uh, And the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them underfoot and turn and maul you. This is quite a section. deals with two things, really, unfair criticism and, and the law of reciprocity. So Jesus opens it up with, do not judge so that you may not be judged. The word judge is krino uh, in the Greek, and it means forming judgments and reaching conclusions about both things and people. What we have here when he says, do not judge, it's like the fifth beatitude, blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy, and the fifth petition. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's, it's like both of those in reverse here. Jesus is not telling his disciples, 
uh, to suspend all thought and discernment. That wouldn't be honest behavior. We need the ability to make good value judgments. And the Sermon on the Mount calls us to do this, to use our critical powers. This is how we can live differently from the world. So what's Jesus really saying when he says, do not judge? It comes down to two words, avoid condemnation. What he's forbidding here is is finding fault with others. Uh, And and not just uh, in our speech, but in our thoughts. Because we all know how to be nice Christians. He's saying that This reciprocity, it's going to come back against the one who exercises it. And we do it, don't we? We'll we'll say things like, well, I don't mean anything by this, but, or a classic, don't get me wrong, but when we condemn, when we criticize, what we're doing is we're judging others harshly. We are assuming their worst motives. Um... Judging seeks out, is looking for the failings of others. And what this really means is we're not allowing God, we're not trusting God to to be at work now, and we're not trusting him in that final judgment. You know, we can never, ever, ever know God's verdict for another. And I think if we did know, I'm glad we don't. We'd be very surprised. You know, judging has a lot to do with exclusion. It's writing people off. When when we exclude people in our heart, we're deciding there's something wrong with them. Uh, When we condemn, we're setting ourselves into God's place. And that's why Jesus said, don't do it or you too will be judged, this law of reciprocity. And reciprocity is the focus of this section. It's it's not the prohibition of of the use of our, our critical faculty. It's how we use it. Judging the other takes God's place. We we become answerable to him when we do it, Jesus says. Paul picked this up in Romans 14, starting at chapter at verse 10. He said, why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So then, each of us will be accountable to God. Now, remember, there were no chapter breaks. Those came at about 400 AD. Uh, St. Jerome put those in. And so it flowed right, this passage flowed right after But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. I think it's very interesting that Jesus went right from that to, but don't judge. Because he's he's saying seeking God's righteousness does not allow us to judge others. This, This passage here, once again, drives me back to the Beatitudes, where I recognize my own poverty of spirit where I recognize my own great need. Jesus is calling for love and humility and meekness and mercy and forgiveness. He's saying these are the marks of those who follow my way. John Wesley, 
famous evangelist, said this, the judging that Jesus condemns here is thinking about another person in a way that is contrary to love. So, (laughs) there's a prohibition here, don't judge, and there's a warning, or you too will be judged. It's good to judge if something is good or bad, but, but we must not pronounce to others, oh, what you did, you're, you're condemned by God. God hates that. Our goal isn't condemnation, it's, it's reconciliation with God and with man. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, judging others is the forbidden evaluation of other persons. It corrupts simple love. Let me say that again. Judging others is the forbidden evaluation of other persons. It corrupts simple love. Forbidden. So Jesus goes on, verse 2, For with the judgment you make, you too will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Now, Jesus either meant if we judge, we're going to get the same treatment from others, or... He's referring to God's judgment. This is a strong motive for not judging others, not criticizing. The threat of God's judgment sometimes is needed to move our hearts. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week in the, in the summary section of the sermon. But Jesus is saying, don't judge, be merciful. He's calling for mercy. Did you know that mercy in the the Hebrew has said is the most oft used word to describe the character of God? Mercy. Paul makes a similar point in Romans 2, right at the beginning, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same thing. The critic who is blind to his or her own failings is living in a make-believe world, a world of self-delusion. And so he exempts himself from the very standard that he's putting everybody else through. And this is, this is a classic formula for the breakdown of relationships. St. Augustine gives two excellent reasons not to judge. When you're not sure what was the intention behind an action, and when you don't, don't know for sure what kind of person the man who appears good or bad today will become tomorrow. He says, we can't know what's going on inside them, their intention right now, but also, who are they going to be tomorrow? God's got them in process. John Stott said this, the command to judge not, to judge not, is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. Isn't that a marvelous quote? He's not saying be blind, just ignore it. But he's saying, be generous, be generous. This is the mark of, of the new community, this, this countercultural community of those who follow the Jesus way. And it is so countercultural because it's absolutely opposite to our fallen nature, to our tendencies, to the whole momentum of society. 
And then Jesus goes on in verses 3 to 5 with the whole thing about why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye? Don't you realize you have a log in your own eye? Um, how can you say that? Uh, make sure before you try to help them, you take the log out of your own eye. The, the log or the plank. Jesus is using a comic image. This is, this is, it, it's not sarcasm, but it's, it's mockery. It's, it's like, it's ridiculous. I, I used to work in a sawmill. I never ever saw anybody get a, a plank caught in their eye. Of course not. So what's he doing? He's saying just as that's a ridiculous image, so is judging others. He's saying it's inappropriate to draw attention to another's failing when, when your own is much greater. It's impractical and it's insincere to offer to help somebody else with their problem when we have a bigger problem ourselves that we have to deal with. So it's a it's an intentionally ridiculous scenario. There's a universal law. And if we're honest, we see that we confront this all the time in ourselves. The universal law is this. We give ourselves grace for our mistakes. We undervalue the impact of our failings on others. And we overvalue the impact of others' mistakes on us. And so we give grace for us all the time and judgment for others. This has been called the law of critical gravity. And it, and it pulls us to judge in our favor. The log in our eye is, is a critical spirit. Condemnation blinds us to who the other person really is. Criticism prevents us from seeing the other person clearly. We always give ourselves a break. Uh, Proverbs 21.2, all a man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. Here's something else John Stott wrote once, and I really love this. Criticism seeks the pleasure of self-righteousness without the pain of penitence. Hmm. Think on that for a while. In his kingdom, we enter into a new reality where he's at work all the time. All the time he's at work, redemptively, creatively. And so condemnation is no longer relevant because Jesus doesn't condemn and he's moving us through our failings into new places. That's why Paul began the famous chapter 8 of Romans. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here Jesus says, when he's talking about the, the plank and the, and the speck, he uses that word again, hypocrite. But it's the only time he uses it uh, toward a disciple rather than those outside. And I think that there's something here for us. I think Jesus is saying it's, it's the outsiders who can see our hypocrisy of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness will never win anyone's heart. Self-righteousness moves us away from the whole direction of pursuing Jesus. So, to avoid being a hypocrite, 
according to the eyes of others and what God says, we first got to clean up our own behavior and recognize our own poverty of spirit. There we are, back to the first beatitude again. It's only then that we'll begin to see clearly enough to, to posture ourselves in the way that God intended so that in mercy, we would seek to help the other person. And I don't mean, well, this is for their own good. I mean brokenness, humility, mercy. In the new community, which is one of my favorite terms for the church, we can help each other out in purity, in humility, in mercy, in mutual spiritual growth. Because God wants us to grow individually and as his body. And and, and this new community is marked not by judgment, but by love and reconciliation. So, so, folks, these verses do not call us to be silent, to just ignore things, let everything slide. They call us to humbly seek to grow together in love for God and one another. A verse that doesn't get preached on very often is in James. He said, confess your sins, therefore, one to another. You know, after, after we have invited the Holy Spirit to shine his light on our hearts, to search out our motives and our failings. After we have been convicted, after I have been convicted of my sin, my failing, my hardness of heart, then if I'm really convicted, then I confess them to the family. Confess your sins one to another. If I'm not willing to confess my failings, my sin, my weakness to brothers and sisters in the family, I don't mean on social media, I don't mean in front of anybody indiscriminately, but in the family of God, then then it opens the way to authentic community. Scott McKnight said this, What Jesus is calling us to is self-awareness and other awareness shaped by God-awareness. Jesus is telling us that we really are all sinners in need of mercy, grace, forgiveness, and patience. We say, oh, I'm a sinner saved by grace. We, We need that. What's the most popular hymn of all time, Amazing Grace? But it comes to us when we let the Holy Spirit go deep. So we are a community, we're called to be committed to walk in honesty and transparency and a deep and genuine hunger to grow in grace and in the knowledge of him, as 2 Peter says. I've shared this example over the years because I was so struck by it, but when we were doing a journey of compassion in western Kenya, one day we... Working with our partners, we always work with with you know the local partners. We did a baptism, and and it was a mountain stream that they dammed up with some logs. It took all day to be deep enough, and I had to climb down. We all had to climb and scramble to get there, and there was a good sized crowd. But what struck me was this: each person before they were baptized, they stood and and confessed from the heart. 
The one I will never forget is a, a young gal, maybe, I don't know, 18 or 20, who before she was baptized, she spoke across the water to her mother and said, I have not been a good daughter. Please forgive me for all the criticism and the back talk and all whatever was going on. And, and she was weeping and her mother was weeping. And then it was, now she's ready to be baptized. And she was baptized. What a contrast with our North American model. Um, I was in a recent discussion about this. And, and, and you know, it's like we were in the water, out of the water, next, in the water, out of the water. I think there needs to be a public confession in baptism. You know, what you put into anything is always what you get out. And, uh, and I believe it's such a holy moment, but it requires transparency. Let me move on. Verse 6, do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine or trample them underfoot and turn and maul you. There's various interpretations of, of this verse. The most traditional view is, well, yeah, don't, don't judge, but, but be a little bit critical. Don't be oblivious to, to what's going on or the sins of others. This, this first view, which is the most common traditional view, Jesus is saying, don't judge, but that doesn't mean don't think. Don't pretend that all people are the same. And so don't offer your pearl, the pearl of great price, which is the kingdom. Uh, St. Augustine, quoting him a few times today, we may rightly understand that these words, dogs and swine, are now used to designate respectively those who assail the truth and those who resist it. So in this traditional view it's about the inappropriate use of, of something that is sacred and special. There's another very different view of verse 6, because how can Jesus be telling us not to waste the treasure of the gospel on those who reject it? When this is exactly what Jesus did, he was rejected. He faced ultimate rejection. Um, in Luke's version, Luke chapter 6, the Sermon on the Plain, he says, uh, for he is good, God is good to the ungrateful and the wicked. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. You see, I don't think the issue is worthiness, but helpfulness. What do I mean? We want to control our environment. It's part of that ego self. It's part of protecting ourselves. We want to control our environment. We want to control those around us. And the first five verses, it's the warning about doing it through criticism and judgment. But in this verse, it's almost a warning not to control uh, through our good intentions, our unasked for solutions. Um, one of the things that the people that I have mentored over the years, I always tell them, stop answering questions they're not asking. You know, I think this verse is referring to good intentions, but they're presented insensitively on our timing, not theirs, and it's not helpful. I think it's a sign of not trusting that God is at work in this person's life. We've always got to respect people's right to choose, respect God's willingness to 
to give them free will and not to push this. I, I get very, very uncomfortable with, with well-meaning Christians who just try to push somebody to a decision. I don't think that's how Jesus ever worked with people. Now, another interpretation of the, the dogs and the swine, and he Wright suggests that in Jesus' day, the Jews uh, would have, they described the Gentiles as dogs and pigs, so they would have made the connection immediately. And so, and Jesus urged his disciples to preach only to the Jews. Matthew chapter 10, which we'll get to in a little bit, says, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This, this prohibition to go is going to last until the resurrection and Pentecost, where then they're told to go to all the world. Now, sometimes it, even in Jesus' ministry, it spills over sometimes to the Gentiles, the, the Syrophoenician lady in uh, chapter 15, for example, but they're not the target at this time. And here's an interesting thing about pearls. St. Augustine, we've talked many times about the, the literal, the moral, and the, the spiritual or water-to-wine reading. And here is how St. Augustine sees this about pearls in terms of water to wine, spiritual. Pearls signify all spiritual things that are worthy of being highly prized. Because these things lie hidden in secret, as is, uh, it is as though they were being drawn up from the deep. Because they are found in the wrappings of allegories, it is as though they were contained within shells that have been opened. Isn't that an interesting reading? In other words, sharing the deep things with people only as they're ready to receive them. And I think that takes us back to answering questions that they're asking. So this is about being sensitive to every opportunity to share the gospel. But the key, the key is to be sensitive. It requires listening to the Holy Spirit and the person that we're standing in front of. I'm convinced that God's timing is vital in this process, and I have discovered, and this is from one who loves to share the gospel, who, who's been blessed to, to preach the gospel, I have no idea how many times in different countries. So I am, I am pro-evangelism, but I think that his timing is often slower than ours. Well, let's move on to expectant asking. Ask and it'll be given to you. Search and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who searches finds. Everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there any among you who, if your child asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if the child asks for a fish, will give a snake? If you then are evil, uh, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? This is the second time in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus addresses prayer. The first time in the Lord's Prayer, he gives us content to pray, a track to run on. This passage, he gives us radical asking. The promises are huge, and those promises encourage us to enter into prayer. John Calvin said this, Nothing is better adapted to excite us to prayer than a full conviction that we shall be heard. Martin Luther said this, 
God knows that we are timid and shy, that we feel unworthy and unfit to present our needs to him. That is why Christ wants to lure us away from such timid thoughts, to remove our doubts and have us go ahead confidently and boldly. Many of us have been told that in the Greek, the grammar is ask and keep asking, seek and keep seeking, knock and keep knocking. It's about perseverance. There's something here in prayer, asking, seeking, knocking, is very active. And the way to receive from the Father is to talk to Him. We're often reluctant. It's weird, but we're reluctant to talk to the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit about our deepest troubles, our deepest concerns, our deepest sin and failure. Dallas Willard said this, prayer is talking to God about what we are doing together. Takes us right back into this partnership that I emphasized a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at the Lord's Prayer. So what's going on here? Jesus is making promises concerning prayer so open and so absolute because he knows we wrestle with our faith. He wants to encourage us to pray and he wants to encourage us to be honest with Papa. So if God already knows what we need, why pray? It's not because of him. It's because of us. It's not whether he is ready to give. We're not trying to talk him into something, but whether we are ready to receive. Also, all healthy relationships are, are actively interactional, right? There, there, there's got to be this sharing, this partnership. So we don't pray to inform God. Prayer is Papa's way of training his children. It's his way of forming their character, of learning to wait for him and not move ahead on our own. He's coming against some really wrong perceptions that often we're not aware of on the surface, but they run deep. That, that he's not a reluctant stranger, and he's not a strict or, or angry father or even boss. But also, he's not an indulgent grandfather who just says, there, there, whatever you want. He is our heavenly father, as we talked about two weeks ago. He's the God and creator of the universe and he bestows good gifts of the kingdom because that is the, the heart of the entire story. It's that the kingdom of the heavens comes to this earth. He bestows gifts that are of the kingdom. They're not a promise for everything we ask for to be given, by the way. They're, they're often preached that way, especially, I must say, word faith preaching. There it is. There it is in the word. Whatever you ask, you get, you know, John 16, 23, etc. But this is an example of something called rhetoric. And, uh, and, and Jesus uses rhetoric powerfully in the Gospels, as does Paul in his epistles. Rhetoric is the purposeful exaggeration uh, for the purpose of changing the listener's perspective. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week. And I think it's going to open up your eyes to see the New Testament in, in some very new ways. 
So Jesus is using rhetoric to make a point. He knows we don't, every prayer doesn't get answered. Matthew 17, when, when the, the disciples, Jesus and the three come down the mountain and they see all this hubbub and the disciples tried to cast a demon out of this kid and it wouldn't come out. So they prayed for deliverance and they didn't see it. So what's he doing here? He is using rhetoric to address doubting. Doubting disciples who need to be reassured that God loves them. They can trust him. He anchors the call to petition in in the Father's goodness, right? That's why he says, you ask for bread, you're not going to get a stone. It's not a magic formula for getting what we want. Prayer is not magic. I remember one time uh, a member of the congregation of one of the churches we planted, he, he, he had some serious issues around alcohol and tobacco addiction, and it created diabetes and high blood pressure. But he would come week after week, please pray for me that my blood pressure will go down, that my, my sugar levels will regulate. And I finally said to him, you're not asking for prayer. You're asking for magic. So, it isn't magic. Don't read these verses like they're magic. They're rhetoric. They're him trying to encourage us. Your father's on your side. Notice he didn't use guilt to get them to pray. Oh, if you would just pray more. No, he gives positive. He gives them a compelling vision of the goodness of our Father. Tell you, every pastor learns, hopefully, in the first few years of preaching that guilt is like the worst motivator on the planet to move people. Jesus never uses guilt. So when we're faced with the honest discouragement of of unanswered prayer. We keep praying, not because we think, if I just pray it the right way, or if I just pray long enough, my prayer might work, but because we keep praying, because our focus stays on the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because we know he's good. If a child asks for bread, if your child asks for bread, will you give him a stone? Or if the child asks for a fish, we give him a snake. By the way, bread and fish were the, the standard diet, the staples of, of the Galilean diet. And he says, if you then who are evil uh, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give, give good gifts to those who ask him? It's because God is good, he only gives good gifts. Even if we ask urgently and and repeatedly, the Father is never going to give us something that would actually harm us. And we can all think of examples um, through our lives of, wow, I'm glad that prayer wasn't answered. You see, only God knows the difference between what will help and what will harm us. So in this sense, the promise is conditional. Is what we're asking, seeking, and knocking for, is it good for us? But he says, your faith and your desire are expressed through prayer. So be persistent. And what about waiting in prayer? If Sam Storm said this, 
if all we had to do was ask the Father for something once and then sit back and wait until the request was granted, we would inevitably move into self-sufficiency. Persistent asking makes us more aware of our utter dependence upon him. And now the final section of this passage, which is verse 12, fulfilling the law and the prophets. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Just as we live with generous Father, the world should live with generous disciples. Let me say that again. Just as we live with a generous Father, the world should live with generous disciples. Now he's summing up all the material of the Sermon on the Mount. He's summing up the, at the heart the core message of the Beatitudes, of, of us being salt and light, change agents in our world, about him fulfilling the law and the prophets, uh, about the, him prohibiting anger and lust and calling them like murder and adultery. He's summing up the need to forgive others. He's he's summing up the, the prohibition on judging and criticism. All of this, all of this is, is encompassed in an ethic of discipleship and the kingdom. This saying that the golden rule is profound in its scope and implication. It's not hard to understand. You can't can't, and I can't sidestep its meaning. Let me say it again. This is so clear. Whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Christostom said this. You knew I couldn't get through a week without quoting Christostom at least once. He shows that the definition of virtue is short and easy and known already to all. So we all know within ourselves what our duties are. We cannot ever again find refuge in ignorance. It's interesting. I I came across through various different scholars. They all talked about a similar episode. I, I spoke to you a few weeks ago about two rabbinic traditions around uh, divorce. One was the husband, for anything that displeased him, he could get rid of his wife. The other said, no, only unfaithfulness. Well, one of those rabbis uh, was Hillel. And once he was challenged by a Gentile to summarize the law in the time that that Gentile could stand on one leg. And Rabbi Hillel replied this famously, What is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. All the rest is commentary. (laughs) Isn't that terrific? So the golden rule, its scope is really quite remarkable. Disciples can know the Father's will for others by looking within their own to their own interests and their own desires. By this one directive, we're freed from all kinds of little rules. It's all summed up in the golden rule. Jesus, just like what Jesus did in the, in the great commandment, love God, love people. This sums everything up. 
He's freeing us here from depending on being led about by the rules and the consciences and the standards of others. In in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gave us the Father, this incredible gift we talked quite a bit about a couple of weeks ago. Now he gives us ourselves. Isn't that interesting? The golden rule is simply a restating and refocusing of the the great commandment. Um, Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we're to do to others what they would want others to do to us. We've gone from loving to putting that into practice. And to love people in a way that we want them to love us is not selfish. It's expansive. We're we're to extend our self-care to others. Paul said this in Romans 13. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word, Love your neighbor as yourselves. Luther said something really interesting here. The only example Jesus sets up is ourselves. Thus, you are your own Bible, your own teacher, your own theologian, and your your own preacher. Now, if if we quoted that out of context, that's just dangerous. That's just a call to license everyone doing what is right in their own mind. But what he's doesn't, he doesn't mean that. He means what we've said before, that suddenly, oh, I know how I am to feel about others. It's the way I want them to feel about me. I know how I'm to treat others. It's the way I need to be treated. You know, this frees us to be proactive in our relationships. We, we get to take the initiative in how we treat others. We need to learn to listen to our own hearts in order to learn how to treat other people. When we see someone else in need, we simply ask, boy, what would I want in that situation? Or how would I want to be treated? By the way, I think we need to connect this as as the people of God, as this countercultural community. We need to connect this to social justice. This clears up an awful lot of stuff about all the, all the, I was going to use the word flapdoodle, which is a Mark Twain word about critical race theory that's going on right now. Why would we want to be treated? This this deals with political, social, economic issues. The golden rule touches everything. And you know, it's interesting because it it doesn't cause us to look back uh, at how others have treated us in the past. It causes us to look forward, to anticipate what others would like done. So once again, in the sermon, we see Jesus teaching sensitivity to the humanity uh, of our neighbor. The golden rule at its heart is about empathy. If we would set an example, not based on our reaction to slights against us, perceived injustices, etc., but rather to understanding and empathy, we would become the change agents that Jesus told us to be. So let me finish with this quote from Scott McKnight. If you listen to yourself in all of your life, you will be led out of yourself and into a life of loving others. This concludes the main body of the Sermon on the Mount. 
the, the final section, which we're going to look at next week, is, is like the coda, but I'm telling you, it is a powerful, powerful coda. And we're going to use it next week for me to teach you something that's very, very important. For many of you, it will change the way you read the New Testament from now on. Because we're going to teach you about how Jesus and Paul and the other New Testament writers used rhetoric. This is so important that we get this this genre. The most difficult of all the genres is rhetoric. We need to understand it because without this understanding, we so easily miss the point. And frankly, we usually slip into literalism and fundamentalism and everything else. We need to understand rhetoric. And when you see it, it begins to open up the New Testament in ways that we never saw before. So God bless you. And uh, please hang around because in just a moment, Tim and I are going to discuss this section we looked at today. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comment section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Well, I, now I, I just want to know about rhetoric. You got me all jazzed for next week. so <laughs> You're going to have to come back. I will. I, I'll, I'll come back, I promise. <laughs> Uh, I do have some questions for you this week. Before I do, I wanted to talk to our listeners a little bit about our skills and business programs. We mm-hmm. haven't talked about those in a few weeks because the need has been so great in relief. You know, at Impact Nations, we really focus on three things, which is journeys of compassion, uh, relief efforts for those in immediate need of, of help, and then the skills and business programs that help uh, the poor get to a level where they're self-sustainable. They're able to to go find employment or start their own businesses. Uh Understandably, the recent weeks with the crisis, COVID crisis in both India and Uganda, we've been looking at relief quite a bit. But believe it or not, actually in the midst of this COVID crisis happening in Uganda right now, there is still a need for skills and business development. Uh, And in fact, actually perhaps because of it, there is this need. Uh, Our partner Trinity, uh, you've seen him on this podcast before, you've heard him, uh, he has a school he calls Elevate, and it reaches uh, young adults uh, from the slums, who most of whom are escaping a life of violence and, and drug abuse and things like that. And they're teaching them high-tech skills such as um, web development, graphic design, photography, videography, things like that. Uh, they have the largest class they've ever had this year. They've got 100 students. And when we, when we talked to them last week... Uh, you know, I, we kind of were operating under the assumption that they would have to be shut down, but actually he's found a way to make it work. They're social distancing and they are going in, uh, they've got a hundred students. So they're, they found a way to kind of slow down the course, but there's, they're doing 10 students at a time in the building and he's got stations spread out far apart so that they can do that social distanced. Um, one of the reasons he said to me that it's imperative that they keep going is because he doesn't want any of them to slip through the cracks. Uh, what's happening with young people in, in Uganda right now, actually, because there's nothing to do, there's no employment or things like that, they're they're getting up to no good. Uh, and there's there's violence in the streets, so they're, they're even vulnerable. Even if they're just minding their own business, there's vulnerability out there and stuff. Um, but also there's a hopelessness. Yes. We talked about it last week, this hopelessness that is sinking into the nation of Uganda. Yep. Uh, kind of a here-we-go-again kind of feeling. 
Yeah, uh, we're finding that as we talked, both of us, to our partners yeah. over the last week. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's understandable. I, I admitted in this chair last week that even I was kind of feeling a little bit of that as yep. we, as we learned about the, the reality in Uganda. So one of the great ways to battle hopelessness is to have a touch point every single day where they've got something that they're aiming towards. They've got something they're building towards. They've got a goal. Um, and they're surrounded by a community that is caring for them and encouraging them and praying with them and things like that. So, and equipping them and equipping when they them come out the, the other end. That's right. Because many of these kids, would it be most, come out of terrible slums. I believe so, yeah. Uh, terrible slums. Yeah. So this isn't just, oh, good, now I get a job. No. It's an entirely different life with an entirely different future. Yeah, and generational change, speaking of yeah. the future, right? I mean, this is this is change that their children will experience or benefit from as well. Uh, but the reality is that we've been so focused, I'm just telling you the truth right now, we've been so focused on the relief efforts and stuff that our, our funding for skills and business has waned a little bit in recent months. Uh, and the truth is that actually the expense is going up because now we've got to spread it out more. We've got uh, teachers that are working four times as many hours really because they've got to split up these courses into much smaller groups yep. and so our cost is is higher uh we're now you know a program that was going to end early this summer is now extending through at least september because of the lockdowns but it's absolutely vital that we continue to press forward this is this is change that lasts um yeah we got to get food to the people who are starving absolutely 100 percent. that's really really important but we're gonna if we can invest in these people now it will, it will eliminate their need for aid in the future. And that's what we're all about, is bringing sustainable change. And of course, incorporated into all of these programs is the gospel, where they're discovering life in Christ as a result. So uh, if you would like to learn more about our skills and business programs, you can head to impactnations.com slash skills. Uh, and do do uh, stay tuned. Follow our Facebook too, because we get uh, a fair amount of, uh, videos from specifically from that program actually sometimes those videos are made by the students themselves yes uh, which is really cool so that's how you can learn about what they're doing there all right questions um you're just about done the sermon on the mount yeah we've got one last week one last week on rhetoric well uh, i'm going to teach on rhetoric but mm. but we are confronted rhetoric confronts so right. we're going to be confronted in uh, I think it's four different ways. Wow. And you promised that it would change the way we read the Gospels, which Let is Let me exciting. just say, two gates, two roads, two trees, two foundations, and leave it at that. All right. That sounded a little Dr. Seuss, but okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thing one and thing two yeah. come in. It's in the Amplified. Um, you talked a lot about judgment today. Well, Jesus talked a lot about judgment, and so you talked about what Jesus was talking about. Uh I, th I think this is more a comment than a, a question, I suppose, but I'll get you to follow up with it. But I think it's vital in relationships in the kingdom to know who we are in a relationship and to clarify our roles in relationships so that we almost know ahead of time what, uh, this will sound weird, but what level of judgment, like how, how accountable we can be to one another, if that makes sense. Like if we can make clear, hey, look, I'm in an intimate enough relationship, friendship with you that I want you to recognize the plank in my eye, so to speak as well. Um, what, what would you have to say for that in terms of defining our roles well, in let relationship? Me just, I, I touched on it briefly last week, I think, but I, I've written on this. Discipleship is kind of built on, on 
if I may say, planks. <laughs> uh, one is invitation and one is challenge. Mm -hmm. And so we invite people. Um, and in the classic mentoring role, we just invite them into our lives. But in the context of what you're saying, we also invite in peer relationships. We invite them, hey, you know, I've really been struggling with getting very frustrated at work. If, mm -hmm. we, if you see it, help me. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, challenges the other side. Um, I One of the things I try to emphasize today is we have a bad habit of answering questions that people aren't asking. Yeah. And I think we, especially as evangelicals, because we're just trying to get in a little word for Jesus, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> have people over to our house and, wow, well, how about, how about the Lobos? They're great. Pitch. Speaking of Lobos, <laughs> didn't let me tell you what Jesus did in my life, you know. Um, sorry, Lobos is a local sports team. Uh, but uh, I think that authentic relationship always has growing invitation. Mm -hmm and growing challenge. Yeah. All right. Verse six, you talked about a couple of different uh, interpretations mm. of this concept of pearl before swine. Yeah. Um, it, that's a verse that I see quoted out of context quite a bit. Um, yeah. But it, as you were talking about it, you talked about, you know, Jesus is in one sense telling people not to push others to a decision. Um, and... So in the art of sharing the gospel with people, in the art of uh, presenting the gospel to people who, you know, you uh, in non-pandemic times are often finding yourself in a situation where you're presenting the gospel to an entire community. Yep. You've got, a, you know, half a village gathered in front of you and you've got a mix of those who are have really been prepared by the Holy Spirit to hear the gospel and some presumably their hearts are hardened and and less inclined to receive the gospel. Mm -hmm. um, I happen to know because I've been taught by you on on the the delivering the gospel, but also the invitation of the gospel uh, at the end of that delivery, that there is uh, a need to add urgency. You know, come now, don't miss this. This The Lord is yep. calling you sort of thing. Where's the fine line between yeah. uh, urgency versus being pushy? Yeah. Um, it's a great question. It's like I think of these things in two different spheres. Mm -hmm. One of them is that, uh, public ministry, what you just described. And the other is relational. And, you, you know, you've heard me say for years that the, the, the foundation for discipleship is friendship. The bridge is friendship. So in that friendship, I'm trusting God to work through the process of our friendship. Mm -hmm. When I'm in a village and I'm standing up there, and frankly, I've got like 15 minutes. Um, but related to that is, as you know, others may not, I will have spent a lot of time with the believers before ever I stand up there yeah. on how to do this, you know, of how to to be friends and how to not push, yeah. but to but to not be shy either, but just to be relational. Mm -hmm. So in one sense, I'm handing that off to them because, yeah. of course, I can't do that. We're on to the next town the next yeah. day. Yeah, good. Uh, all right, last question, golden rule. I have heard 
people use the golden rule to promote self-care, so to speak, you know, uh, love others the way you yeah. uh, love yourself. Yeah, well, so it's like, well, just take care of you sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. What do you have to say to them? <laughs> I say, welcome to the uh, 21st century evangelicalism. Um, uh, you know, you go find a church that'll tell you 22 ways to take care of you mm-hmm. and why God just wants you to have the best life you can have and be the most successful and on and on. I guess I should stop. Yeah. But um <laughs> So I think that it's completely out of hermeneutical context. In other words, that isn't what Jesus meant and was saying. Um, There are some people we need to encourage, stop beating yourself up. Right. But not most people. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so that's not what what he meant. Yeah. Um, It's interesting that that, uh, Matthew 7, 12... I didn't grow up in a very church background, but we went to Sunday school for a little while, and that's the one verse I remembered all the way yeah. through. Yeah, well, and, and that would be one of the verses that much of the world would quote without even realizing they're quoting Jesus. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Well, next week, rhetoric. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, hopefully, the entire thing isn't uh, – Dr. Seuss presentation. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> it's a shame that nobody can see your socks today, by the way. Those are fantastic socks. I, I wonder if I should just get wild and crazy. Can those be seen? I now? don't know, but you know, I, I can't go I any can't, higher. I can't or tell I'm we don't have a something. monitor. But uh, if you're a listener to the podcast, I want you to know that for the most part, you get every bit of the experience, except when there's a sock presentation. And then if you're only getting the audio, you are really missing out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because it's, 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 Hard. These socks don't really sing. No. No. <laughs> Although they're very loud. <laughs> they, are, but they are very loud. Yes, indeed. Thank you for that. All uh, right. Well, friends, thank you so much for being with us again this week. Uh, just a quick reminder, uh, if you are a listener to the podcast, make sure you are subscribed. Uh, you can head to impactnations.com slash podcast and hit the subscribe button there, and you'll get that delivered to your device uh, on the app of your choosing. Uh, if you are watching on YouTube, be sure to hit the subscribe button there as well, and hit that little bell that comes up after you hit the subscribe button that way your device will be notified as soon as we go live every week Uh, we are here live on youtube and now on facebook i believe as well uh, every thursday at 3 p.m mountain daylight time we would love to have you live Uh, we can take your questions and stuff live too Uh, until next week god bless you